0: Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. Now, um, if you would like one of the church Bibles, the drill now is you put your hand up and um, there are people that will bring you a copy of the Church Bible. We, As Mark has said, we're going to be uh, reading from Ephesians chapter 1. And in the Church Bible, it's on page 1173. But it will also come up, um, not just immediately, but before long, on the screen. Um, so you can follow from there if you'd prefer. Last week, Kim was, was talking um, about the vital importance of how we, we look at the world around us. Do we see it through God's eyes? Or do we actually look at the world in a way that is no different from anyone else? And we were studying the example of Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, in Athens, which was in Acts chapter 17. And Kim described for us Paul walking up and down for a while. He was on his own. He was the only Christian in the city. And he was walking up and down the city, and increasingly, as he was looking at, at the sights, as he was conscious of so many temples and idols everywhere, which were just like uh, modern advertisements, actually, for different gods or different ways of thinking, Paul was distressed and disturbed in his spirit deeply, because Paul's eyes had been opened to begin to see the world in the way that God does. He saw everything differently, increasingly, from the moment that he had become a Christian some few years before. And now he would, he would look at the world, and, and what he would see would grieve him, would would hurt him and, and disturb him and so on. And we began to think with, with Kim last week about how potentially everybody's thinking nowadays can equally be dominated by idols of one sort or another. People make idols out of their, their homes, their possessions, their, their expensive furniture, um, or their reputations, or position at work, or, or just the body beautiful. And we get influenced by these idols all around Um, And basically underneath, it's all to do with self. And we were challenged last week. As you walk up and down in your world, in our Athens, how distressed are you ever at the way people think and at the influences upon their thinking that come cascading off the billboards or out of the television or the magazines or whatever? How different are we in our thinking Monday uh, to Saturday? Now, I want you to hold that challenge from last week in your mind. Because we will come back to it. What we're doing today is coming to the positive side. What have you got in your mind that fills the the vast spaces of your mind? That helps you resist the kind of thinking that, that squeezes us? We need solid things in our minds. Otherwise, we stop worshiping God and we begin to worship idols. And so this passage, written to uh, Christians in Ephesus, a city that was equally full of idols. In fact, it had um, one of the largest wonders of the ancient world, the big temple of Diana um, on a hill in the middle of the city. This letter was written to people who were living right in that world and probably to Christians in in the surrounding area. It was a bit of a a circular letter that went around. It's a huge, brilliant epistle, Ephesians. Many, many commentators have have suggested that it has the largest scope and the loftiest themes of any of Paul's writings. In some ways, it's it's like looking at, at a colossal picture. I don't know whether you've ever looked at a A real masterpiece by a master, but not a tiny little thing, but one of these huge pictures. I can remember um, being in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, and they have a whole gallery that's full of Rembrandts. And I went into the the room, it's just one big room that has that famous painting by Rembrandt, The Prodigal Son. And amazingly, in, in a Russian museum, you can go right up close to the... If I had dared, I could have put my finger out and... And put my finger on the, on the brush strokes. Not really supposed to, but I, you could get that close. But to get the, the real effect of the picture, you have to go right to the back of the room. And they provide chairs. And I sat there for half an hour. You can get up close and you can see the magnificent details of eye and, and hand and, and so on. But to sit at the back, you sit sometimes with people who weep at the power of this great big picture, which is that picture talking about the love of God for people like us who find our way home to him, that we might be accepted and, well, ransomed, restored, healed, forgiven, the title of our our considerations this morning. Even the passage that we're going to read now in a moment is huge though it is just a fragment of the epistle because it goes from before the world was even created when there was just god thinking and planning things right through to a, a time when the world as we know it will be over and we are invited to be part of what god was originally thinking and planning let's um, let's read this chapter together the first two verses i'm not going to spend time though one could on on the formalized greeting paul an apostle of christ jesus by the will of god to the saints in ephesus the faithful in christ jesus grace and peace to you from god our father and the lord jesus christ and then we come to verses 3 to 14 which in the greek original is you'll hardly believe this, is one long sentence. 202 words in the one sentence. That's how Paul wrote it. In the NIV, the New International Version that we're reading from, it gets chopped into eight separate sentences, thereby slightly confusing everyone, I think, as to what it is essentially saying. Although I, I'll explain it. If you were to read a version like the, the, um, the New um, Living Translation, It comes out in 15 separate sentences. Let's read it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love. He predestined us to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves that's the Lord Jesus Christ in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ To be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. That is packed, <laughs> packed theological writing um, by Paul. Now, It's vital to say right at the start as we begin to try and understand this before we come to communion together that this long sentence was written in order to praise God. We are told that three or four times. It starts off, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The the sentence ends to the praise of his glory and twice in the middle it breaks out um, in verses 6 and 12 in further declarations of praise. The whole passage is like a kind of formal blessing. Uh, and it was written <clears throat> to honor God and lift people's hearts to him at the start of the letter and not written chiefly as a list of blessings for us. It's designed as an eye-opener uh, to, the, to how amazing God is and how extraordinary his working. And it is particularly concerned with God's will. God's will is mentioned four times uh, in those first 14 verses, his purposes, his big plan, his will. Now, Paul is particularly praising God for his two great goals, the two things that his will is set on accomplishing, and the underlying purpose behind them. And he sets out these two in logical order. What are they? <clears throat> First, God. Wants He is determined to have people, us, sons and daughters, holy and blameless, before him in love. That's his great loving aim. I mean, God had made the lilies of the field beautiful things and so much more, and yet he wanted more. He made the animals, and according to the book of Job, the angels burst out in applause when he made things like the hippopotamus and so on. But he wanted more. He had made human beings, but he still wanted more. He wanted them to be his sons and daughters, his family, bearing his likeness, sharing his purposes. Together in his presence. Do you ever have um large family gatherings? It's sad nowadays, some families hardly ever do that, and some families are fractured and, and it doesn't happen. But you could imagine, I'm sure, uh, where well, it's Christmas maybe, or it's a birthday, an anniversary, a large sort of family gathering where everyone is is together. It, the fact is it isn't always loving and united, is it? People can have their own private little histories and agendas and, and stuff god wanted to do it perfectly he he wants you as a son daughter like him gathered together with him just to be together and verse 4 says he planned this before the creation the foundation of the world now this is not saying that God thought up this great scheme, oh, oh, ages ago, just a long time ago. No, no, this is the reason for the creation of the world. Because God wanted to have people who are adopted into his family, who are like him increasingly in nature, before him and with him, therefore he had to make a world. It was a place in order to bring about the sonship or the daughterhood of God, where we can choose to respond to his grace, where we learn to trust him and grow like him in the midst of a world full of visible distractions and difficulties. Some people think that the entire human race are all children of God underneath. Jesus himself said this is absolutely not true. As John makes plain at the start of his gospel, We are not God's children automatically, whether we like it or not. In John chapter 1, verse 12, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You and I need to receive the Lord Jesus as our own personal Lord and Savior. We need to trust that he is our Savior before we ever step over that line into the family and are adopted um, as God's children. Isn't it amazing? Now, step back. Just come with me back. Back from the detail. Isn't it utterly amazing that God should make a universe? He would fling galaxies into space. He would cause human beings to come into being on one planet and then he should come and visit that planet and all that flowed from that so that when the world's purpose is finally over and it's gone and done away with, God will have millions of offspring before him in love who all wanted to be adopted into his family. That's an utterly astonishing thing. You and I are the reason behind the creation of the world. And a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will last far longer. And this world will ever last. Sometimes people at this point in reading this chapter raise the popular problem, I don't know how popular, but the common problem of uh, predestination uh, at this point. But I just want to say that that misses the entire point of this passage and actually destroys, I think, the wonder of what is being said. This passage is not saying that God chooses some to be saved and leaves all the rest of their fate without hope. This passage is not saying that God goes around choosing particular individuals to be saved. In fact, it never says in the Bible, we are chosen into Christ. Not once does it say that. What it means is this. God has said before the world ever began, that it was his choice that any who should be in Christ will be saved. God has, as it were, delineated this great circle. Christ, any who are in him, they will be adopted. They will be saved uh, forever. He has given a whole group of people the destiny beforehand, literally predestined them, ordained beforehand, that they are to be, this group, Adopted into his family to be his sons and daughters. I believe that is the best way to understand it. And you, just, you see the distinction that I'm making from the text. Let me give you an illustration from the Old Testament. Um, from the story of, of Noah's Ark. Which I guess you know. Sixth chapter of Genesis. The world was full of wickedness. And God decided to make salvation possible before everything was to be swallowed up in judgment. And so he brought about the construction of the ark. And any who were in the ark were predestined to be safe. Before the ark was ever built, that destiny was to be granted to that group of people. And Noah went around preaching the gospel. 2 Peter 2 says he's a preacher of righteousness and the door was kept open and Noah preached and the invitation was genuine and the message was rejected and then the flood came and eight people came through that flood in the ark to their predestined new beginning that which God had always intended before setting up this process and before bringing judgment now similarly any who are in Christ have been given the destiny before the world was ever made of being God's sons and daughters, and he has planned for their holiness and blamelessness in love before the first atom was was created. That's his his love towards you, and his desire that before you are ever a twinkle in anyone's eye, that he have you as those related to him as sons and daughters, and that has always been the plan. And the second great goal that this passage sets out is that we, now in the family, and this is truly remarkable, and I find more people tend to think about the first goal than the second. The second great goal is that we should be part of Christ's future government of the universe. If you go back to verses 9 and 10, quite literally in the Greek, they say this. He, that's God, purposed an administration of the fullness of time. So as to sum up everything in Christ, both the things in the heavens as well as the things on the earth. Now the effect of that is somewhat lost in the NIV. God is planning and preparing an administration. The word is used, it's the same word that you would use for the management of a household. It's actually the word "oikonomia," from which we get our word economy. Um, sometimes in politics you get, I can remember the days when the Tories used to be hopeful that they would form the next government. Um, they'd be planning an administration, you know, that sort of thing. That is what this is saying. God is planning, he is purposing an administration for the fullness of time. Isn't that amazing? He is intending to involve us in the government of the universe and whatever else may follow. That's extraordinary, because we, we sin. As Paul immediately goes on to address, you and I are rebels. We're not merely disappointing. We are defiant. I am just under six foot of smelly clay, and I, I raise my fist against my Creator. And this says, I mean, you you think that people like us would be the very last people that God would want to involve in his purposes or have living in his home. What has he done? He has redeemed us, says verse 7. He has bought us back from slavery into which we had fallen. And at what cost? And we shall be remembering. Look at that red. That's just grape juice. That red in in the The dish there. But that is to speak to you of the blood of Jesus Christ, God's only Son. At what cost were you and I saved from our sins? But verse 7 reminds us that the riches of God's grace were even greater. (coughs) He paid the price. And then says the end of verse (coughs) 7, he still had more grace to lavish upon us. Even after paying the price for our salvation, for our redemption from sin, he still has more grace. He redeemed us. He forgave us, says verse 7. And then verse 9 goes on to say, he's done this other very important thing. He's, he's begun to make known to us the mystery of his will, his purposes, unveiling his mind, showing his ways of working, disclosing the secrets of his kingdom. When you come into the family of God, It's a great day and you're safe now. You've come amongst those people who have that destiny given beforehand in Christ of being safe for all time but now God wants to begin to let you know more of how he thinks of what he's like of how he wants you to relate to your family and your church and your nation and so on. The Father wants you to know his mind. This is why the study of of scripture for us all is so vital. It's not something we can just leave to other people because we're getting to know the mind of God. You and I need more than redemption. Redemption is the basis of everything else, but you and I need more than that. We need a deepening revelation of the will of God inside us, which we adjust to so that one day we will be part of his future government equipped and qualified to reign with him. You imagine a father, say he's a farmer. And his son or sons are growing up, and he's training them in in the family business. Or a man who is a businessman, and he's training his his son to grow up and share the business with him. That's what this is talking about. God revealing his mind, opening up his ways, so as to prepare us to be an administration. For when the times as we know them now are complete. All this, says verse 10 is so that everything, the whole story of the universe, and my life, and my death, will all be summed up, literally, that's what it means, in Christ. It's a word that would be used, say, of a great Greek orator. You know, he, he's making his speech, and people don't see bits, and don't always see the connections, and don't get the big picture. I understand. But he comes to his great, sort of, peroration at the end. He sums up, Everything at the end. And then people say, ah, now I see what he's been going on about. Well, the great conclusion to the whole story of the universe and the story of the Bible and the story of you and, and everything is to be the glory of Christ. His perfection as creator, as redeemer, as Lord, as head, as bridegroom, as judge. It's all going to speak in the end of the glory of Christ, and everything will be put unitedly under his overarching majestic lordship and rule in the grand finale. Then people will see. They'll see the glory of Christ, they will see his government, and they'll see the whole point of their life. Now, do you see what I meant by saying these two great goals have been put in logical order? He wants you in his family. He wants you intimate with him. He wants you close. He He wants you to be truly sons and daughters of his own. And then he wants to train you, to shape you, and make you ready one day for unimaginable responsibility. And it's all going to be so that Christ may be glorified. It's an incredible amount for one sentence, isn't it? And we haven't even got to the end of the sentence. If I've got another five minutes, have I, Mark? Verses 11 to 14 speak of how this is being worked out in practice now. How are we going? I mean, we've gone from eternity past to the making of the world to our being adopted into his family. And we're looking off to a future that stretches way out in, in beyond where we can see. In the now, today, how does this big picture stuff, how does this Sunday fit into those purposes? How does my house group fit into those purposes? It's a very important thing to think about. How does this little piece of the jigsaw fit into the whole big picture or your family or your life? Well, verse 11, Paul says, first of all, we Jews, that's what he means, we, we Jews were chosen. Uh, literally having been predestined to be part of God's inheritance, what God is going to inherit off this globe. We Jews first. In fact, Deuteronomy 32, verse 9, says the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted inheritance. And then verse 13 says, and then you Gentiles were included. First the Jews, then you Gentiles were included in Christ. How does God do that? There are two ways, and it's the same all over the world. We've been praying for Africa this morning, and we think of Nepal, and we think of America. It's the same, verse 13 explains. Number one, through the preaching and teaching of the Bible. What Paul calls here, the word of truth. When people listen attentively to the Bible, things happen. Their eyes get opened. Something supernatural starts going on. They reach out in hope and response. They hear the voice of God himself. It may only be in a sentence or half a sentence, but it's God at work, and the picture grows. It is through the hearing of the word of truth, the Bible, and the biblical gospel. And I'm sure you can remember time after time, probably in your life, when you come away and you say, I really learned something there. That drew me. I felt the horizons of my understanding and my spirit were being expanded. That's God at work. Through the word of truth. That's something going on for eternity. And then, secondly, he talks about the sealing of the believers with the promised Holy Spirit, kind of a mark of, of ownership on us to God. And it works around the other way as well. Because we receive the Holy Spirit, not only does God recognize us as his children, but it is to us kind of a pledge, a, a promise of our inheritance one day. Interesting, the modern, I learned this when I was in, in Greece once, the modern Greek word taken from this idea of, of the, um, the guarantee, the pledge, is an engagement ring. He, he gives her an engagement ring. He expresses something thereby. Mine was fairly cheap. And I've regretted it ever since. I bought it for 800 rials in the back streets of Tehran, which I think is something to the north of a fibre, was it? South of a fibre. <laughs> you lost it eventually, didn't you? Or did it break doing the washing up? She's whispering, she's not, uh-huh. But it meant something. I mean, we were on OM at the time, what more could you expect? It meant something to her. And someone might get a slightly more expensive engagement ring. And he might be away somewhere, on business or abroad or whatever, and she has that. And it's a pledge. It's a guarantee. And you look forward to her a greater day and a greater inheritance. The Holy Spirit is given to us to seal us as belonging to him, but to be a, an engagement ring, if you like, a pledge to us of a great inheritance coming one day. You see, God is at work. He's seeking to, to make you his own. He wants to involve you in his government, so he's speaking his word to you. He's sealing you with, with the Holy Spirit. All this so that Christ may be glorified. Now, all this ought to fill your mind and excite you, as you walk around amongst the idols of, of modern, commercial, materialistic society. When you come to the Lord's table, because these things are true, you ought to be excited. Something ought to overflow of joy. I've sometimes sat and watched people taking communion, and you'd think, it was boring. This is nothing more than a potato crisp and an olive and let me get home to lunch. No. These things that are true in Ephesians are absolutely astonishing. We ought to maintain that wonderment that God should treat us like this, that he should do such things for us. And it ought to be enough to cause us to be distressed when we move around in our Monday to Saturday worlds at the way others, the others think. But I know my own heart. And let me end with this. Do you know how all this makes me feel? I study a sentence like this and I, work, I think how on earth am I going to convey in an orderly manner the, the stuff that is here. And I want to pray. Lord, my eyes get so easily closed to your glory. They do. They get filled with other stuff. Open my eyes again and again and again, Lord, that I may worship you better with my friends in this congregation than when I'm on my own. Open my eyes. You know, it's the very next thing that Paul goes on to write in the next paragraph. The next paragraph that we're going to study next week is all about having our eyes opened to the great truth because Paul knows that even if he had been up here explaining these things a hundred times better than me, you would still need to have something going on that opens your eyes to the wonder of it inside. We all do. Teaching is not enough. It's absolutely vital. But it's not enough unless there is also the second paragraph, the opening of eyes inside. To see what is true and to live by it. But that's next week's study. For now, well, we're going to sing Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. And then we're going to come, Mark's going to lead us um, to the Lord's table. So let me pray as the musicians come, and then we will stand and sing this hymn Father God, we. We confess that our eyes are often very dulled or crusted over with this kind of sleep that the world induces. We pray that we may have clean, bright eyes to see the things that are true spiritually and beyond the horizon. Help me, help us all. Maybe some here that have never yet taken that step into the family of God, of receiving the Lord Jesus and believing on Him. May their eyes be increasingly open this morning. And they reach out in faith to the Savior and say, please be my Savior. Lord, open all our eyes that when we come to the table, when we come to worship, it's not out of routine, but out of such an overflowing of reality because our eyes are being opened and not shut. Hear us as we sing this prayer in the song now, Lord. And may during the course of this coming winter, our church here, one encouraging another, may, they be, may it be a place of greater praise and worship and obedience of listening and response with greater passion and warmth than has been the case up to now. For Christ's sake, amen. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.